1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today the book we'll be hearing about is called Rhythms of Revolt, European Traditions and Memories of Social Conflict in Oral Culture. This is a collection of essays co-edited by three folklore-friendly, for the want of a better term, historians, Eva Guillorel, David Hopkin, and William G. Pooley. As long-time listeners to this podcast may remember, David Hopkin is my brother and he was interviewed on this podcast a couple of years ago, but today my guest is Ava Guillarel. Ava, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Hello. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and perhaps how you came to be a folklore-friendly historian, if you accept that that's what you are.
0: Yes, I accept this very well. In fact, I identify first as a social and cultural historian and mainly an early modern historian. So in France, it means people working on the 15th to 18th century history. But for me, the fields of history and folklore are very closely related. And I feel really at the intersection between the two disciplines. So between the sources, interests, and methods of folklorists and historians. But maybe I should say is that the term folklorist is uh, impossible to use in France today because the term is very negatively connotated and associated to the use and promotion of folklore in France during the Second World War by the collaborationist government. So after the war, everybody stopped using the word. So today, there is no department of folklore in France anymore. In, in French universities, I mean, there are departments of ethnology, of anthropology, but it would sound very weird to claim to be a folklorist today in France. But personally, I, I really feel comfortable with resources and interests developed by folklorists in the 19th centuries and after.
1: And how did you become familiar with the methodology of the folklore discipline? Because it's not so common for historians to use that kind of um, working method.
0: I think the starting point was when I was uh, 18 years old and I decided to record the life of my grandfather, who was born in Brittany in the countryside in a poor family. He left home at the age of 13. He spent a decade in the French Navy. And after the war, he moved to Paris to work in car factories, like many, many Breton people who emigrated to the capital city at that time. And I, I can't really remember how I started this Life Story recording. But it lasted uh, during several years with regular sessions of recordings. And when we stopped, my grandfather was nearly 90 years old. He died shortly after and this experience completely changed my relation with him. And I think it also completely changed my life in the way that I realized that I enjoyed very much talking to all people, uh, talking about their lives, their stories, talking about oral traditions. And after that, I continued to do fieldwork, mainly to record songs in Brittany and after that in French-speaking North America. So at the time, I was not aware uh, I was doing uh, ethnography or folklore or history or anything. I had no plan to make something professional with that. But I have been very lucky to meet academic people who pushed me in that direction. And so I, I started my studies, my academic studies after that, and I made uh, three master's degrees in Brittany One in history, one in Breton and Celtic languages, and one, yeah, one later in ethnology. And I had to find a topic for my master's degree in in history and then my PhD in history. And I wanted to find uh, a link between uh, history, Breton, and ethnology. So all these things I was passionate about. And I was also an amateur musician. I played the the Renaissance lute and the Celtic harp. And and I'm I'm also an amateur singer. So uh, I tried to find a link between all that. And I was very lucky to find a history supervisor who pushed me to work on historical folk ballads in Breton as a source to document early modern Brittany, so 16th, 17th, 18th century Brittany. And with this topic, it was a way to to, to make a link between these different disciplines. So that's how everything started. And after my PhD, I spent three years in the US and and Quebec for postdoctoral research. And then I got a job as an associate professor in Normandy in France in early modern history And that's how I managed to live professionally of my passion for folklore and folk songs. But at the beginning, there was nothing planned. And I had never thought I would become an academic historian one day. So that's the story. So tell us, what is Rhythms of Revolt about? The book focuses on the memory of European revolts and social conflicts from the 15th to the beginning of the 19th centuries in oral traditions. So it's a book uh, based on ethnographical sources like uh, songs, legends, tales. And we had this idea that uh, we wanted to work on the culture of rebels in the early modern periods. And... Uh, with the idea that this culture was primarily an oral culture, which was rarely recorded or written down. And many, many works have been written by historians about Europe, European revolts, but without having a look, uh, a serious look at oral testimonies, and especially testimonies that have been preserved and transmitted in oral traditions and collected by folklorists. And the project of the book was to try to reevaluate these oral traditions as sources for studying early modern rebellions and the memory of these rebellions. Because in fact, uh, there is a lack of interest very often by historians and a conscious rejection of the value of folklore by the historical disciplines. It, it's the history of the disciplines, which is related to that because uh, uh, the historical discipline is rooted in historical methods since the end of the 19th century when history diverged from folklore and established itself as a modern academic discipline based on the analysis of exclusively written documents which were supposedly more faithful, more reliable than oral sources. It's a very debatable point and so our project was to, to work on these oral traditions often Uh, uh, underestimated by historians. That was the purpose of the book.
1: Right. So it seems to me it's not just about these revolts and how they're uh, portrayed in oral traditions, but also it's a kind of a manifesto to other historians to look at these oral sources in their own work.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And and I think the word manifesto is a good one. And in a way, it's also a manifesto because very few historians are interested in such sources. So when you want to... uh, to to, uh, to 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 prove that these sources are interested, you you must uh, be uh, proactive to to convince other people that yes, it, it's it's worth investigating uh, such sources. So so yes, we had to be uh, uh, convincing or try to be convincing to 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 convince uh, historians used to work on written documents. Right, and this is a lot of what the introduction is about, and because this is a
1: volume that contains many different essays by many different authors, we're going to focus more on this introduction. So in the opening of the introduction, you're talking about the decision to use the word tradition rather than memory. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about?
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, we wanted to start the introduction with a, a discussion about vocabulary, And terms very often used by researchers, because when you see the recent uh, uh, works and studies made by historians or researchers in the recent decades, the word memory uh, is very, very often used, the word collective memory, social memory, past memory, and so on. And so this word has been used with very flexible meanings And at the end, we don't always know anymore what it refers to. And that's why we wanted to propose another word, the word tradition, rather than memory. When we talk about stories which continue to be passed on from generation to generation, although there is no personal connection anymore between the people who transmit these stories and the events they relate Uh, when nobody knows where the stories come from. For example, if it's not the story of your uh, own grandfather who experienced the Second World War, so a family story, perhaps uh, it continues all the same to be transmitted. You don't know where it comes from, but still. And this is a a tradition. And we also prefer the word tradition because uh, the word memory is associated to... uh, Expressions very often used by historians in the recent uh, decades, like uh, sites of memory, lieu de mémoire in French, following uh, Pierre Nora's monumental collective book, Les Lieux de mémoire, or another very uh, famous uh, expression, Invention of, of Tradition, following uh, Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger. Mm-hmm. So these two books have been very influential, and these historians have developed the idea that. The transmission of memory is necessarily related to institutionalization, and they don't really believe that oral traditions can circulate in private, in, in in families, without having been invented by external agents for political reasons or ideological purposes. And of course, the states, churches, schools, written books, other media have influenced oral tradition. We don't deny that. But historians uh, used to work with written documents rather than with oral tradition often don't imagine that there are other models of creation, circulation and influences. And that's why we wanted to focus on these alternative sources, or traditions, and we wanted to discuss the words and the methods to work on these sources. So the book is about... Revolts, it's using oral sources to look at various
1: revolts that took place in early modern Europe. Is there a particular value for oral sources in uh, the history of revolts? Why would oral sources be particularly valuable in researching revolts rather than, I don't know, succession of kings and queens or something?
0: I think they are very relevant because uh, revolts are. um, a field in which it's difficult to find sources uh, emanating from the rebels, uh, because uh, uh, if we want to investigate rebels' motivations, their practices, their organisation, we we don't have many sources. The sources we have uh, uh, are uh, um, written sources, and the culture of rebels was. Uh, first and foremost, an oral culture, so a culture expressed uh, in a repertoire of ballads, of jokes, of prophecies, of legends, and of songs. Uh, songs, especially, are very efficient media to spread rebellious ideas. And so, the authorities were worried and frightened by the effect of songs on public opinion, and they tried to forbid them. And so, when historians want to to, to recover uh, the culture, the voices of early modern rebels, uh, rebels what they have, mainly it's official records of the forces of order denouncing them, like uh, trials or police reports. And so many historians have worked on that with very interesting studies, but very few historians have tried to cite uh, the words of rebels preserved in a tradition. And well, of course, when we talk about oral, oral sources or oral tradition, we must also talk about their interaction with written text. We don't want to, to divide too much the uh, oral and, and written things. Both things are, are mixed. Uh, we, we, we know that things are more complicated than what Romantic scholars in the 19th century uh, said. So imagining that oral tradition was uncontaminated uh, uh, by other forms of historical knowledge, but well, still, we think that these oral sources have something to 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 to, to, to give us, to help us to to know better the, the culture of of these rebels. So maybe it's not a, a, an alternative history, but at least it's a, a supplementary history or a corrective to existing narrative and official accounts that we already have uh, through a, a written form.
1: Okay. So say you wanted to research a revolt or rebellion that took place in, I don't know, 16th century France. Where would you go to find a record of the oral culture that was produced at that time and and presumably continue to be passed down?
0: Yeah, we we have different uh, sources. So Uh, Mainly, So you you can try to find information in in trials or or administrative reports written down in the 16th century or 17th or 18th century, but we wanted to focus on ethnographical sources, so either uh, uh, songs or stories or legends written down by folklorists in the 19th century. So it's also written sources, but written sources taken, uh, written down from... Uh, oral uh, uh, tradition, or there are also uh, sound recordings made uh, later. So in, in, in during the twentieth century, and some of these songs, in certain cases, uh, can still be heard today. Songs or stories or legends, and so they can continue to be, to be recorded and, and, and analysed nowadays. So that, that's the different kinds of, of, uh, of, of uh, sources we have for our traditions.
1: Okay, so you're actually using collections made of songs that recount events that took place centuries earlier, but which were recorded much later in one form or another.
0: That's right, exactly.
1: One of the sections in the introduction is called Keeping Quiet About Sedition, Silences in the Oral Archive. So there are obviously revolts and rebellions about which there are not collections recorded in some way. You have various theories about why there might be these silences in the archive, in the Oral Archive. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yes, in fact... uh... At the starting point of our um, reflection, we thought that we would find uh, more things than what we did, (laughs) so we were a bit uh, disappointed, I don't know if if it's the right word, but we we, we tried to understand why, uh, for some revolts, we have many sources from oral traditions, and for uh, others we don't have. For example, the Jacobite rebellions in the British Isles in the 17th, 18th century, or the Cossack uprising in Russia in the 17th, 18th centuries. We have many sources, many oral traditions, songs, legends, and for others, we don't have traces of oral tradition related to them. So the question is why? Does it mean that these traditions don't exist, which is a possibility, or perhaps these traditions? have not been transmitted until us, so they have been lost because they have never been uh, 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 recorded by ethnographers uh, uh, or because they they were transmitted during a few generations and after that they they lost their meaning and so they stopped to be transmitted. And if they have not been transmitted until us or if they have not been recorded by ethnographers, these... Uh, uh, traditions remain unknown to historians, so there is nothing we can do. But in some cases, it's also because historians and other researchers did not uh, look uh, at these traditions. So if if we want to have sources, we need to have uh, someone at some point interested in recording these sources. If it's not the case, maybe for some revolts, there are traditions, but we don't know them. So what you're looking at is traditions that have been
1: passed down through generations, so that the memory of these revolts survives in the oral culture long after the events have passed. But it sounds like in some cases, it's not just that they haven't been recorded, but they weren't passed down in a significant way to begin with. It seems like you're hypothesizing that may have taken place in certain cases. For example, you discuss why are there not many songs about the enclosures which took place in Britain. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what the enclosures were and why you think there may not have been songs surviving from that period.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's a good question because so enclosures, it's this uh, phenomenon of Uh, enclosing common lands, so lands used by all the community to have something private. So rich people wanted to to keep the lands for themselves, for their personal use. And because of that, uh, other people, mainly poor people, could not have access to this common land, and, and, and so uh, it created uh, inequality between uh, between the, the population. So this phenomenon of enclosure was very important uh, in England, for example, uh, since the end of the Middle Ages until the end of the early modern period, and so it was a, a, a form of traumatism to 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 have this common lands taken away from from the population. So we could imagine that this phenomenon of enclosure uh, uh, um, gave way to a lot of stories, of songs, of legends, but we don't find uh, anything or almost anything. So the question is, uh, did people uh, make songs and we don't have them, or perhaps... Uh, I say songs; it can be stories or legends, or, or perhaps they decided to uh, uh, keep silent, and 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 because it was too, I don't know too 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 difficult to talk about uh, such things, uh, w- w- which is also a phenomenon um, analyzed by uh, by uh, by some researcher in psychology, for example, for uh, very traumatic events, or perhaps. Uh, the stories they, they they made, or the stories, the songs they made, uh, were not explicit, and we don't have a clue today to understand these stories and to understand the allusions uh, uh, of these stories of legend or legends to the enclosures. So we, we we don't know today, as historians, how to interpret uh, uh, certain stories. Or, or, or certain uh, uh, allusions to, to 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 these events, but all these are hypotheses. It's it's difficult to know, of course. And actually, your next section in the introduction is
1: precisely about the problem of interpreting oral traditions, and this is not only because we are now far removed from the events described in the traditions, but also because often these songs and stories have been recorded without sufficient contextual information for example we don't necessarily know who was singing to whom or anything about the context in which these oral traditions were performed that's part of the problem isn't it in terms of how to interpret what's going on
0: yeah yeah it's it's, it's a big problem because very often the, the, the text we have oral cultural text we have are fragmentary are, or unfinished, or they seem unfinished, unfinished for historians today. And, uh, uh, many things are suggested, but are not explicitly said. And especially in the case of revolts, sometimes, uh, keeping silent or using metaphors could be vital to escape repression and death. So, especially with this topic of revolts, we can have, uh, things, uh, 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 implicit but not explicit. And for songs, uh, uh, the rebellious message may lay not in the words but in the tune, in just the melody, and the reuse of certain tunes can have seditious. Connotations, it's very common. A very famous one is La Marseillaise, for example, the French national anthem. It was composed during the French Revolution, but it was reused in many, many later revolutions in the 19th and 20th century. And just the fact to use this tune means, oh, I'm going to uh, make a song which has a rebellious meaning. So, in some cases, we have a clue to understand that. In other cases, we don't, or we can just uh, make hypotheses. The the problem to work on the early modern period is that we have very little information about the context, about the performers, about the performance. For example, we don't know uh, which gestures accompanied the performance. And so without this contextual information, we can only speculate on what was being communicated to whom, for which purpose, and where uh, 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 the, the message was rebellious or was not.
1: There's a sentence in the introduction where you write, mutability of meaning is an unsettling trait, and it goes some way to explain why oral cultural sources have been neglected, even disdained by historians. And yet you're arguing in their favor so even despite these problems you're saying that they are worth looking at so why what can we find out from a song recorded even without context can you give us an example perhaps of a song that's been particularly useful in guiding an interpretation or offering a, an interpretation that might not otherwise have been available
0: i would say 1st that. i'd The multiple meanings are are an important uh, part of the definition of this oral tradition, Uh, the plurality of interpretations according to the performer, the context, the audience. And that's also perhaps why these oral traditions are so uh, powerful and why they continue to be transmitted from one generation to another, because Uh, uh, different people could find a different meaning in them even when the first meaning, the first historical context is lost. Some legends or stories or songs or prophecies can still have a powerful meaning for people continuing to hearing them and transmitting them. Uh, To take an example of a song which is not easy to interpret when we read the text, for example, um, the song El Segados, Sung uh, during the revolt of Catalonia in the 1640s, so in, in Spain. And uh, now it's the national anthem of Catalonia. And when you read the text, it's first uh, a working song celebrating uh, agricultural works, uh, celebrating the strength of reapers working in the fields. And it's because of the use of this song in a rebellious context and the reuse of these songs in later rebellions that uh, the song took a connotation, a seditious connotation, and it became a song of revolt, a song of rebellions. I don't know if it's the kind of example you wanted.
1: Yes, absolutely. So even though the words seem fairly innocuous, it's the history of how it's been used and and the knowledge about that that's been passed on that has added this kind of seditious meaning to it. Yes, exactly. That's a great example. The next section, you're talking about the aesthetics of memory. And here you're talking a little bit about how the forms of oral culture, in order to survive, in order to remain popular, sometimes I think you describe how individual details are flattened out in a way so that they are less specific but lend themselves to later reuse.
0: Have I got that right? Yes in, in fact there is a, a kind of a tension in our tradition between uh, 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 stability and uh, variation. Uh, some things remain the same and other other things change. And if you want uh, a oral tradition to survive on the long term, it must be repeated and repeated again across generations. And there are um, mechanisms through which uh, uh, experience and events uh, 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 um, turned into a song or a legend are transformed into something memorable. And some folklorists have even defined uh, kinds of Aesthetic laws and stereotypes. For example, the law of tripling, the fact that things come often in threes, it's for three things in, in stories, three girls, three kings, and so on. So you have uh, s- uh, certain stereotypes, certain cliches, uh, which come back regularly. And when you are a historian, the question is if there are stereotypes in these stories, in these songs, stereotypes that are common to large repertoire of oral traditions. How could these traditions inform on historical precise events in the same time? And it could seem contradictory, but it's not. And in fact, uh, historicism often matters in oral cultures, and many oral cultures put a high value on historical veracity, they prize uh, fidelity to, to the narrative. So you must uh, 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 transmit a narrative uh, as it has been heard from the previous re- generation. So. uh, Innovation is not something uh, 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 interesting. Well, something uh, valuable. It it doesn't mean, of course, that there are no no alteration or no innovation. Of course, there are plenty of of uh, renewal of alteration. But still, even when they are reconstructed, uh, uh, many songs, stories, legends retain historical and also literary interest. So this is this tension between the two things. If you you want, I could take perhaps uh, 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 practical examples to be clearer. (laughs) Uh, Well, if... if, if, uh, well, I'm I'm going to talk about Brittany because it's 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 a, it's a place I know well, and I worked mostly on, on Breton songs. In Brittany, we are very lucky. So in Western France, we are very lucky to have a very rich repertoire of historical folk ballads. So in Breton, which is a Celtic language, and these songs. Uh, uh, many of them talk about local historical events that took place in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. And these songs were recorded from oral traditions and uh, uh, are still, for some of them, heard uh, uh, today. And they were massively recorded in the second half of the 20th century, so so centuries after the events took place. And they have kept, they have retained very precise uh, 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 details about these historical local events dating back from centuries before. So a lot of precisions on social, material, religious, cultural life. And so even though s- there are some cliché narrative stereotypes, motifs coming back, but in the same time, if we can make the difference between general stereotypes and 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 and. Uh, original precisions related to to an original historical event they are very precious material to document the whole early modern british society
1: right okay the next section is talking about the meanings and uses of oral traditions in performances and this covers something that you've already alluded to with the example you gave of the catalonian national anthem which is how oral traditions from a previous revolt can impact an oral tradition in a later revolt?
0: The idea that if songs or narrative were preserved in oral tradition, uh, we can assume that it's because they kept a meaning for those who transmitted them, even, this, even if this meaning is not historical anymore. It can be a, a, an, an aesthetic meaning, it's a literary meaning, but it can also uh, uh, be... Uh, a, a story or a song which uh, reminds uh, uh, um, lessons from the past and which can be motors of actions in the present and guides for the future. Uh, for example, if you take the case of uh, prophecies, uh, prophecies uh, are formed a huge repertoire of uh, motifs and these motifs can be reused to serve political ambitions. If we take, for example, legends about uh, Owen Glandur, Owen Glandur was the the last uh, significant Welsh rebel leader against the English at the beginning of the 15th century. And uh, before him, prophecies circulated, and he used these prophecies to inscribe his own actions in these prophetic tradition, in this living prophetic tradition, to encourage the insurrection, and so, uh, like that, old prophecies were used again as motors for uh, new rebellions. So that's something very important, and with this phenomenon, uh, uh, some traditions can uh, uh, keep uh, uh, a meaning, can stay alive. Uh, 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 on uh, following different centuries. Okay,
1: so this is sounding a little bit like what I've heard in the context of legends, ostention. Is that a term that you're familiar with? When people act in a way that's influenced by a legend that they've heard. You hear this particularly about urban legends where teenagers go legend tripping to the site of something they've heard about in an urban legend. But it sounds like you're talking about something similar going on with prophecies where... By, there exists a prophecy and someone like Owen Glyndor uses that prophecy and acts in alignment with that prophecy to increase his appeal
0: it's completely right for example there were many prophecies saying that in Ireland or in Wales saying that the saviour would come from the sea and so, uh, so some, some, uh, some leaders uh, uh, changed their plans to effectively land. Uh, from the sea to fit with the prophecy. So yes, uh, you're right. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, the penultimate
1: section of the introduction is about sources for rethinking the early modern. And it begins with the sentence, Our argument, therefore, is that oral traditions about early modern social conflicts are sources, difficult but rewarding sources, both for the early modern period itself and for the later periods in which they were collected. They have something to say both early modernists and modernists. So tell me a little bit about that, because that sounds like it's a reflection on who did the collecting when.
0: Yes, it's also a reflection on on, uh, historiography and debates uh, developed by historians about uh, periodization. So when does where and when does modernity start in 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 European society, and it, it's a very difficult question. And for many historians, especially historians working on French history, uh, uh, th- th- these historians uh, had debates about uh, the role of rebellions by opposition to revolutions to define the difference between early modern and modern societies. And rebellion has often been seen as one of the defining features of the early modern period by opposition to revolution. So according to these uh, French historians or historians working on French history, the early modern gave way to the modern when rebellion gave way to the revolution with the emergence of mass organization, class conflict. So it was mainly Marxist historians Uh, 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 defending this idea. And the idea is that early modern rebels wanted to restore a golden age with right social relations, but they they did not necessarily contest hierarchy. Whereas during revolutions, the aim was to destroy the social order and to create a new society. So that's why for French historians, the early modern period finishes with the French Revolution in 17. 89. But if we consider oral traditions, the chronological divisions become uh, fuzzy. There is no uh, clear distinction between past and present because these stories, these songs, these old slogans were reused and revivified through the repetition in oral tradition. It's what we said earlier. And so there is a confusion between uh, the old languages of rebellion and more radical languages of revolution. So finally, this mechanism of oral tradition with these repetition, renewals, transformations from generation to generation transcend the usual chronologies used by historians. And because traditions use metaphors and allusions, as we said, They may have a plurality of meanings, of interpretations. And so everyone can interpret them as they want. So they can be simultaneously conservative and radical and have some things taken from the early modern and things taken from the modern. So that was more or less the the idea we wanted to develop in this section. Okay. Okay. Um, so that pretty much brings us to the end of
1: the introduction. There's just a final section uh, encouraging people to look for sources, I think. Is there anything else you want to say about the introduction? Perhaps I wanted to say
0: that um, with David, what we what we would like, and that's why I think the word manifesto you used was a, a good one, we would be very happy if uh, more historians, many more historians and researchers, uh, having, we hope, the same conviction as we have, or perhaps having been convinced by this introduction, uh, will continue to work on these songs, on these oral traditions, on these legends, with the idea that there are many, many more studies to be done based on this material. There are thousands and thousands of oral traditions, which have never been published since they were collected which are still in manuscripts, in local libraries, which are still on sound recordings. So many things to do. And we are also convinced that some other sources could still be collected on the field. So even today in the 21st century, so there are a huge repertoire of underused oral sources that remain to be found and remain to be investigated. So really our hope is that We are not the only people to think that and that many other uh, historians and researchers will will be convinced by this idea and and, and look seriously at these oral sources. I hope so, too. (laughs) Now, there's
1: then all these case studies, uh, I think 13 different case studies, which uh, provide the chapters which follow. Do you want to tell us about maybe one or two of them?
0: Yes, perhaps I will start with a a French case from the south of France. uh, There is a a chapter written by Philippe Joutard, who is a a leading historian in in France, who is now uh, 85, so not a young researcher anymore, but uh, an influential researcher that we really wanted to have in our team because he was one of the first historians in France interested in uh, oral traditions related to what we call the revolt of Camisards. So Camisards, it's at the beginning of the 18th century in the Sévén, so and in the south of, of France. Uh, it's um, people who were fighting against the repressive religious policy of King Louis XIV, the, the so they were Protestants. And uh, Philippe Jourdat made his PhD in the 1960s on these people his idea was to, to work on written sources, uh, as all historians did at the time. But he went on the field, and the more he went on the field, the more he heard stories uh, uh, spontaneously uh, uh, told by the people. And he realized that hundreds of legends were circulating about these Uh, 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 peasants having fought against the king at the beginning of the 18th century so he started to record these songs but very few songs, these legends and these legends continued to be transmitted until now it's still very present in families now well uh, after the second half of the, of the 20th century, it's more complicated to, 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 to talk about the circulation of, uh, oral tradition because there are so many different media now, internet, uh, TV and so on. But still, since the 18th century until the present day, and he worked on the different sources having influenced these oral traditions of written sources, iconography, oral things. And he really made a fantastic and pioneering uh, study on this on, on this Camisard. Um, he, he, it's also interesting because he made in the book Philippe Joutard made a parallel between the Camisard and the Covenanters, so people uh, rebels in Scotland. And he made this parallel uh, because Stevenson, the the, the novelist, uh, went to France and wrote a, a, a book. Uh, a a diary on his travel in France in which he he, he wrote down in the 19th century many comments, many legends on these uh, uh, French Protestants comparing them with the situation in Scotland. So this is a very interesting uh, chapter, in my opinion. For a completely different chapter and topic, we could talk about the, the chapter written by Malte Grise, who is a, a German scholar uh, specializing on, on, uh, uh, on Russian history. And he, he wrote a chapter on songs and legends about early modern revolts in Russia in the 17th and 18th century around uh, two charismatic leaders uh, Stenka Radzin and Emilian Pukachev, who were Cossack leaders uh, who had made rebellions against the, the, the central power. And many, many oral traditions were collected from the 19th century onwards until the present date. We have uh, uh, sources written down, we have oral recordings of these songs. And this interesting thing is that uh, Stenka Radzin. Uh, rebellion was in the 17th century. Pukachev's rebellion was one century after. But uh, the same motifs, the same stories were reused, so several generations after, taken from the first rebellion and reused for the new rebellion. So we were talking about how our traditions could be Motors of action, how they could be reused in later rebellions. And this is an interesting case here in Russia. Fantastic. Now you've got the
1: conclusion to the book, it is not written by any of the editors. So the editors are yourself, my brother David Hopkin, and William Pooley. The conclusion is written by somebody else, Peter Burke. What does Peter Burke say in the conclusion?
0: Yeah, Peter Burke was a bit like um, Philippe Jutta. We really wanted to have him in our team because he was a pioneering historian working on popular cultures in early modern Europe and interested in folklore. And so we asked him to to, to come to both workshops. He did not give any paper, but he, he proposed conclusions and, and, and we, we, we kept these conclusions for, for the book. And in fact, in the conclusion, he commands the historiography of revolts and memory studies and oral traditions. And he proposes three key terms, especially relevant, I think, to work on oral tradition and on the memory of revolts. And these three key terms are, uh, the first one is reemployment, so the adaptation of old stories to new events. The second word is reenactment, so closely related to the notion of performance, how new revolts are in fact reenactment of older run, or older revolts. And the last word is reconstruction. So the idea is that uh, the memories of new revolts are gradually reconstructed in oral traditions to fit traditional models. And I think that with these three words and the comments he made and these three words, he he put together many of the elements of the discussions of the arguments developed in the different chapters and in the conclusions. So we are uh, very happy to have this conclusion in the book. Okay, that's great. So Eva Guillorel, we thank you so much for joining us
1: on this New Books in Folklore podcast. And just to remind listeners that the New Books in Folklore podcast is just one of the many channels you can find on the New Books Network. So Ava, have a lovely rest of day. Thank you very much.